You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Glad you're here. It is uh, late. I always come in and do these things late, don't I? I've got all the lights off in here because when the uh, the lights are on, it kind of buzzes a little bit. The train just went by, so we missed that. Uh, my apologies. But I'm heading out in the morning for a couple days in Kansas City, and I wanted to get this done before I left because it's in the, that front part of my mind, you know, where it's got to get out and like I'll sleep better if I do. I also wanted to have another Mountain Dew before the day was over. So I stopped. I got to tell you what I do. We have this thing in Minnesota, Holiday Gas Station, and uh, we've got one here a few blocks from the office. And they sell pop. And it says, you know, holiday pop, P-O-P, because that's what we call it here in Minnesota, pop. And you can get, this is my favorite, you get this combination of black cherry kickstart. Uh, so I put like a, maybe like a quarter to a third uh, black cherry kickstart. And then I fill the rest up with Diet Mountain Dew. I really don't drink regular Mountain Dew. I haven't drank regular Mountain Dew for uh, years but it actually gives me a headache now too. Like I really, I just don't drink it, but I do drink diet Mountain Dew, but a, a little bit of that kickstart, that black cherry, especially, oh my gosh, it's really good. So if you want to go crazy, uh, if you're coming to Minnesota for the Super Bowl or whatever, check out a holiday gas station, go in. They've got the best kind of ice. You know, when you make ice cubes too big, uh, they kind of just get in the way you make like those little small ice and what it does is it just gets everything at the right temperature. It's like the amount of surface area is greater and just chills everything down perfectly. That's what holiday has. They've got great ice. They've got a good mixture. Uh, so you can get exactly what you want. And I would recommend the black cherry kickstart with the diet Mountain Dew pop. You can't go wrong. Last week I had sent to me a, <laughs> Uh, get your pop. Uh, I had sent to me a leaked document of the White House's infrastructure plan. I'm not a big leaked document person. I mean, who am I, first of all? But second of all, I find the whole thing silly, you know, the anonymous sources and leaked documents. And I mean, I realized like we're all just being played in many ways. But, you know, it's not like we were leaked national secrets or anything. And then, it shows up on a, a couple websites, the text. And so what the heck? Everybody's kind of chatting about it. I'm going to play along. And uh, who knows You know what the final document will be. Certainly, whatever plan is released by the White House is going to go through a lot of uh, contortions in Congress. And uh, who knows what we'll end up with. But, but I wanted to go over this plan and kind of react to it. I saw right away a couple reactions. And, you know, one uh, reaction that I saw was basically like, this is the greatest thing in the world. And another one was like, this is, this is horrible. In fact, the one that was horrible said, uh, essentially it's setting up cities to be in like a hunger games type scenario where they're going to fight to the death over meager scraps of a federal budget. So you can guess the political leanings of the two uh, reactions I read. I'm going to give you with as much like sans politics as possible. Cause it's just nutty anyway. 
a rundown of what's in this bill. I want you to know, because really infrastructure spending and the idea of a federal infrastructure bill is just crazy for us at Strong Towns. This is the thing that we have been fearing in a sense. We did a big series during the 2016 election campaign about the infrastructure crisis and how we were going to fund this and where the money was going to come from. Our goal was to try to influence the dialogue and the conversation. Uh, with this plan coming out, I feel like maybe we've done a little bit of that. You know, Maybe we've, we've done a little bit of it. There's some good nuggets in here. There's also some horrid stuff, and we'll get into that a little bit too. But let me kind of set the parameters here. Because back in 2009, and I can't remember the exact name of this. It had like a fancy name, the, you know, reinvestment and recovery act or something. I can't remember. It's known kind of by the Obama stimulus name. You know, people call it the Obama stimulus bill. It had a more politically satisfying name. I don't know what it is. I apologize, but I do have the numbers on it. That bill was $831 billion. So uh, not quite a trillion, 831 billion. 105 of that was spent on infrastructure, which is really kind of odd because during the campaign and, and while the bill was being crafted, the thing that everybody focused on was infrastructure. Let's get out there. We've got this huge economic crisis. Let's go out there and put people to work fixing our infrastructure. And the 105 billion is huh, a drop in the bucket compared to you know what a group like the American Society of Civil Engineers says we need to spend. They actually have said, we need to spend double that amount in one year for numerous years to catch up. Uh, $105 billion is actually to be spent over 10 years in the Obama stimulus bill. So drop in the bucket, I think, is a good way to put it. Although the bill itself was kind of trumpeted as an infrastructure bill. It's interesting because when I thought about you know, back during the 2016 election, you had candidate Clinton come out and say, you know, here's my uh, 50 page white paper with, you know, 200 bulleted sub points of, you know, what I'm going to do with an infrastructure plan. I mean, this was, this was the way that she campaigned. I mean, she was a very serious policy person, had a very serious policy position and proposed to spend $500 billion on infrastructure. This would have been huge, even though, again, I'll just note, uh, not a drop in the bucket, but a dent in the backlog of infrastructure maintenance, if you believe the American Society of Civil Engineers. And, and on this thing, I, I kind of do, actually, on the backlog. So, you know, a dent in that, not uh, their numbers, but, you know, a, a good faith attempt at it. Of course, candidate Trump, the next day, or later that day, or whatever, uh, he didn't have the 60-page policy plan and the 200 bulleted points. He had a Trump approach, which is, oh, she wants uh, $500 billion? Double that. I will do a trillion. And so there's kind of been this you know, trillion-dollar number that has stuck with, not only through the campaign, but now into the Trump presidency. We're going to have a, a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure spending. And I got to tell you, if we're going to anchor this conversation, my biggest fear, the thing that I have been in a sense, terrified of, was that we would have just a trillion dollars of basically Obama-style stimulus. You get an interchange, you get an interchange, you get an extra lane, you get a frontage road, Obama-style, but not with any of the, uh, you know, transit-type things and like just basically a trillion dollars worth of auto infrastructure stuff. 
let's go to the meat of the reddest red states. They want frontage roads. They want interchanges. Let's spend the money on that. It'll put people to work. Car equals freedom. Let's go. Let's do it. That, that was my worst fear, that we we're going to get a trillion dollars of that. My ideal scenario that I'm going to present here is not my ideal scenario, right? It's given what I think is like practically possible or achievable. This is the highest bar that I would set for our modern policymakers. That bar, that ideal scenario, I'm going to call it, I laid out last year in a letter that we wrote here at Strong Towns to the president. We published an open letter. And in that open letter, and if you remember, if you were with the podcast last year, I talked about it then. We were actually asked by the transition team to give our thoughts and opinions. This was what I did in response to that. Uh, Basically had four principles to it. And I can simplify those down to this. First, we said, prioritize maintenance. Don't spend money on new stuff. Just fix what we got. Prioritize small projects. So don't do any huge, big, mega projects. The smaller, the better. If you can do lots of small projects, it's better than doing one big project. Three, spend more money below ground than above. The more money we can spend below, those are better investments. They have a a longer life cycle. They have a greater chance of returning. They have a greater chance of, of breaking even, especially if they're combined with the fourth recommendation, which is when deciding between projects, prioritize neighborhoods that are more than 75 years old. Prioritize neighborhoods with good bones, good layout, good setting, not the post-World War II stuff that we've built. Uh, But go in and maintain our old neighborhoods and fix the stuff underground. Because you know what? That is going to be like the least damaging thing that we could do. If If you did a stimulus bill of regardless of what size, and those were the only projects that you did, they wouldn't necessarily all be positive returning, but you're less likely to screw things up you're going to limit your damage a lot. So that was my worst case scenario, my best case scenario for what I thought the policy would come up. I think this leaked uh, plan is somewhere in between. It's not all great. It's not all bad. There's some good elements here. There's some radically good elements here, and I'm going to get into a couple of them at the very end. And there's some really bad stuff, but let's delve into this. Right now, the number that's being thrown around is not a trillion dollars. It's actually 200 billion. Now, the White House is still talking in terms of a trillion, but the trillion number will be money that is matched by other players. So the trillion is, you know, the federal government puts in 200 billion, 800 billion comes from state governments, local governments, the private sector, all added together. So the idea is we leverage 200 billion for a trillion. That's like gimmicky, right? So, you know, whatever. I'm not going to get into like the partisan nature and the the silly nature of Washington politics and, you know, is a cut a cut? Is an increase an increase? Is 200 billion a trillion? Whatever. You can do all kinds of goofy things with math. The number I think that's important for us is that the federal government is in this plan. There is no number, uh, but the number that has been floated is 200 billion, which again, maybe I'll just note that is roughly the amount that the American Society of Civil Engineers indicated we need to spend on transportation every year to catch up on the backlog that we have. So there you go. Uh, 200 billion. That's the, uh, that's the amount that is being floated right now as, uh, as the amount we should spend on infrastructure. Half of that amount in this plan 
would go to something called the Infrastructure Incentives Initiative. Triple I, I guess, maybe will be the acronym. When I first skimmed through this plan, I got hung up on this and I thought, this is disgusting. (laughs) This is like the worst. I mean, this is the Obama stimulus bill, but with all like the worst incentives, you know, and I really got hung up on it. I, I thought this is a, this is a terrible, terrible bill. And when I first like skimmed through the six pages here in this plan, this thing came right up front and it just clouded the entire thing for me. And I got done. I said, this is, this is atrocious. This is terrible. When you look at this, it has, you know, all the hallmarks of the worst kind of federal spending, you know, anything you want to do is eligible, any government or public authority or sewer district or park board or anybody can apply. Just come on in the scoring. When you go through and they say how they're going to score, the scoring is weighted based on how much local contribution there is. And I've seen this over and over. If you're the local government willing to go into debt, hawk the China, you know, hawk the family jewels, put the future generations, you know, out to pasture, what have you. If you're willing to do that, the place that's willing to do that the most will give them the money. This has always been my critique of like the Tiger program. Uh, The Tiger program is very beloved by people who are kind of transportation activists. They like the flexible nature of the whole thing. You know, when you look at it, at the end of the day, if you're a local government willing to go out and borrow way more money than you ever should, your points will go way up and and you're more likely to get the tiger money. I think that's like all the wrong incentives. And those incentives are all here in the way that this infrastructure incentives initiative is being scored with one exception. And I didn't catch this the first time through and I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't because the exception is this one phrase. It goes like this, grant awards can't exceed 20% of the total project cost. Let me say that a different way. The federal government's money here, the money coming from the federal government is not going to be more than 20% of the total project. For those of you who have never worked on a federally funded project or a project that has received federal funds, that's a bizarre, that's a bizarre, con- the federal government is always like the big player at the table. We're doing a huge light rail project here in Minnesota right now. We're spending like $1.2 billion. Most of that money is coming from the federal government. I, I want to say like off the top of my head, like 80%. I've worked on projects and routinely the federal government is paying 80%, 90%. I worked on one where the federal government paid 95% of the total cost of the project. These projects would never happen without that kind of federal money. And there's almost been in the past, I don't want to say it was planned this way, but basically the dollar amounts were just on the cusp of making it painful. So if you were a local government and you wanted to get in and maybe this is just the nature of how consultants and and everybody else will work projects. They know where the pain point is. So they know how to make it as big as they can to get at that point. But it always seemed like if your portion was 5% or 10% or 15% or whatever it was, that the local portion was just slightly higher than what the local government could afford. It's a little like, you know, when you go to buy a new car or you buy a house, like we're going to buy a house and we've got, 200,000 we're going to spend on a house and the realtor will take you and show you one that's 250, right? And maybe you could talk them down to 225 or 230, but you're going to have to stretch to get it. That's what it's always been, but it's always been in that 5, 10, 15%. Now imagine 
that the federal government comes in and they're only going to spend 20%. 80% of the money has to be generated at the state or the local level. That's astounding. That changes the entire bill. That changes this whole section from being like the worst kind of handout imaginable to something that says to local governments, hey, have some skin in the game. We'll come and help you out. We'll be the difference maker here. We're not going to be the rich uncle that pays for everything. You're going to have to have some serious skin in the game. And really, I think in an era where we stem back and we recognize that we have overbuilt our systems, like we have way more infrastructure than we can maintain. And largely we have that because the federal government has paid 90%, 95% of the cost. If the federal government comes to you and says, hey, if you build something new, we'll pay 90% of it. But if you want to go out and maintain something, eh, you're on your own. What are you going to do? Well, it's clear what you're going to do, what cities have been doing for decades, which is they go after the big new project, right? If this passes in this way, that's over, that's done. That justifies this bill for me just right off the bat. I mean, if we, if we could make that change in a broader sense at the federal government level, that we will, at the federal level, only fund, essentially be a minority funder in these projects, you know, the lesser partner. That would be transformative. That would really put the power, let's say, at the local level. Now, it would also put the responsibility, right? I mean, Governing Magazine said, you know, oh, this puts the onus on the states. Well, yeah, it does. It does. Where else should we be at this point? We've overbuilt the system to such a massive scale. How do we stop that? Well, we, we have to put the onus back on the people who are actually responsible for maintenance, it's a really weird system to have one person pay to build the house and the other person pay to maintain it. We have one level of government that builds stuff and one level of government that maintains stuff. And the one that is trying to maintain stuff is saying, hey, we're overwhelmed. We've got you know this massive backlog. We're never going to catch up. And then the one who builds new stuff turns around and says, you know what? Uh, we're only going to build stuff if it's really, really needed and we'll know it's really needed if the state and, and local governments are willing to step up. I don't know what else you do. I mean, to me, that that's almost beyond, sure, it puts the onus on states. Where do you want the onus? Politico, in the left-right spectrum of things, I don't know where Politico stands. I really don't. I, I don't read Politico. It's not my thing. I was doing some research for this, and Politico had an article that caught my eye. They called this proposed plan the Hunger Games of infrastructure. <laughs> For those of you that have not seen The Hunger Games, The Hunger Games is uh, a movie or a book. I I've read the book and saw the movie uh, where uh, 12 districts each send uh, two children to be in this like battle royal duel to the death for the kind of commemoration and sport of the entire uh, nation. And they would duel until there's, you know, one left standing over the course of uh, these games. So essentially, Politico's saying, hey, uh, we're going to have all these states fighting to the death to see who can get these meager scraps of uh, billions of dollars for infrastructure. I don't know. The, the bill also says, you know, no single state can get more than 10% of the money. So there's going to be at least 10 states involved and likely a lot more. And I would hope, and there doesn't seem to be any reason why it can't be used for maintenance. The scoring doesn't 
dock you for maintenance. It doesn't dock you for, you know, or give you bonus points for building new stuff. I'm kind of high on this. This realization changed my whole view of, of this bill. I, I think that this particular provision is a big deal. And I hope that it seeps into, you know, broader kind of funding conversations as well. The second part of this uh, <laughs> is something called the Transformative Projects Program. <laughs> yeah. I just, you know, renamed this, you know, the Elon Musk Fund, right? Because that's essentially what this is. The idea here is that we would take 10% of the money being spent. So if we're going to spend $200 billion, 10% of that, so $20 billion, uh, would get thrown into this fund and it would be used on projects that are called, you know, risky, but potentially high reward. So let me give this a strong towns kind of take, because what I have said over and over again, and if you listen to the last podcast that I did solo like this, it was about investment portfolios. It was about how do we invest? How do we invest that gives us the most upside potential with, you know, a limited downside potential? And what I said is that you should take 5% of your portfolio. And if your city, take 5% of your capital investment fund and shoot the moon. Uh, have 95% of what you're spending in things that are not going to lose you money, are kind of guaranteed to be good, solid investments that will hold their value. And then on 5% of your portfolio, shoot the moon, you know, go, go for it. Make high risk investments. Because if you lose that all, you've not lost more than 5% of your portfolio. Not a big deal, right? You can come back from that. If you strike gold, right? Like if you do shoot the moon, like if everything goes well, you've got a lot of upside potential. So this is a way to have essentially a conservative approach uh, while still having a decent amount of upside potential. I think you could make a case that that's what this program is. Now, the number here is 10%, not 5%. These projects don't seem like they're going to be small. It seems like they're going to be huge. The whole language here is language of partnership. So the idea is that the federal government is going to be in partnership with private businesses that would be making these experimental investments. The federal government would help them up front with research, with demonstration projects, and then with uh, full capital construction at the end to the tune of an 80% federal contribution. Okay, whatever. I don't really like this. This isn't how I would do things. I would make this a smaller portion of the portfolio. I want to focus on one aspect of this, and that is the idea of a partnership. Now, what is a partnership? A partnership is where we share in the risks and we share in the gains. That is a true partnership. In this case, what we have is the federal government spending 80% of the project costs. So the federal government is not the minority partner. It's not the lesser partner here. They are the greater partner. They are the significant partner. They're the majority partner here. 80% is a huge deal. If we're going to build, say, a Hyperloop, and the federal government is going to spend 80% of that money. Here's the other side of the equation. How much of the, is the federal government going to get back? The federal government is sharing in the risk. If the whole thing goes bad. Taxpayers, us, you, me, all the people listening here, uh, we're contributing to this. We're, well, actually, no, because they're just going to borrow the money. But uh, someone someday, theoretically, will have to pay for something. 
And it won't be Elon Musk with the, you know, building the Hyperloop. It'll be 80% the federal government. Where is that money coming from? It is our money. And so we're the major partner here. Where's the gain going to go from that? The added revenue, uh, if people are going to be charged to use this, if uh, land speculation is going to happen on each end and, and that's going to result in, you know, whoever buys those properties at the stops getting a lot of money. Where, where's that money going? Well, that's all private sector. This is the aspect of partnership that just rubs me the wrong way. I'm all for public-private partnerships. I, I really don't have a problem with them. And I think that in a sense, we could do some really great public-private partnerships, particularly at the local level. We could do this in a great way. This is not how you do it. Having the federal government pay 80% of the cost of a project and then having none of, in a sense, the equity and the outcome beyond, you know, just make the tax base great. That's not a partnership. That's not a partnership. That's just a grant. That's just a subsidy. That's just the federal government saying, you know, we want to give some money to this endeavor to see it happen. I mean, you give money to NASA because you want to see space exploration. You give money to Elon Musk because you want to see the Hyperloop built. And if we really believe that there's that much public good in having this done, and we don't really care about any of the the risk or the moral hazard or any of that, then fine. Uh, it's 10% of the appropriation. Live with it. I just don't like the language of partnership that this is all couched in. That rubbed me the wrong way. The third part of this is something that I've just called the rural share. I don't, there was no like fancy name like the other programs. It's basically just like, we're going to funnel a bunch of money to governors in rural states to spend in rural areas. I said in rural states, it would go to all states, but it's going to be based on a proportion of your rural population to the total rural population. And then also a proportion of your rural lane miles to the total rural lane miles in the country. So I'm in Minnesota. Uh, there's 50 states. That means that, you know, we would get 2% of this budget if it were proportioned evenly by state. But let's say that we have 5% of the rural lane miles in the country and we have 3% of the rural population of the country. That means we would get not 2%, we would get 4%. So, you know, half between the lane miles and the population. I hate this. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you why. The idea of rewarding people who have more lane miles is just always been a bizarre and perverse incentive to me. Let me state it like this. If you've been prolific enough to waste a ton of money building lane miles you shouldn't have, that you're not making good use of, and that you have no chance of, of being able to maintain because they were stupid and they should have been built in the first place. What we're going to do is reward you with more money than other more prudent places would get. If you have been uh, prolific in wasting money, here's more money to waste. And the sad thing is that if we look at like rural policy over the years, that's basically been like the policy. Let me draw an analogy here. When I was in the army, and those of you that have been in the, in the service of one type or another will be able to relate to this because this is very much a military mindset. 
we would be issued a certain number of rounds for target practice. So we would go out with the M16 and we would have, you know, practice out in the field. We'd shoot at pop-up targets. We'd zero our rifles, what have you. And every year you had to qualify on your rifles. So you were issued a certain number of rounds. I remember, and I was part of this twice, but I know people did it every year. At the end of the day, after everybody had qualified, you would have all this ammo left over. You couldn't bring it back. You were not allowed to bring it back. Because if you brought it back, then there was all this paperwork with it. You had to explain why you didn't use it. It had to get like refiled, resorted, restocked or whatever. It was a bad deal. And so the idea was, if you asked for, say, 10,000 rounds and you only used 8,000, the next time you ask for 10,000 rounds, you're only going to get 8,000. And you might next time actually need 10,000. So what did we do? I remember taking like a backpack full of magazines, full of ammo, going out on the range and then standing there and like John Wayne style on full automatic, just ripping those things off. <laughs> it was fun. I, you know, I was, I was like a 19 year old kid, but I remember just staying going like, this is ridiculous. To me, this is like the equivalent of that. You have gone out and every time we've given you money, you found a way to waste it on more and bigger projects. And so when we're doing an appropriation, we're going to go out and we're going to base the amount of money we're going to give you on how much money you've wasted in the past. And those of you that have wasted the most are going to get the most money. What a screwed up system. What a screwed up system. I hate this. It's $50 billion. Uh, it's 25% of the total appropriation. The only saving grace here, the way that this is written, and who knows if this will get through the legislature this way, I suspect it won't. I actually think that this is a positive. The money is not given to the DOTs. It's not given to, uh, you know, some infrastructure bank or some, it's given directly to the governor. And it's actually written that way in the plan. Like we are going to give the money to the governor and the governor will decide what to do. Now, some of you are cringing and you're like, I, my governor's horrible. I don't want this. Yeah, sure. I'm sure that they is. Your DOTs are horrible too. And your infrastructure bank is horrible. And basically all of the state systems you have for how to spend infrastructure money are horrible. They're, they're terrible. They're antiquated. They're old. They build wasteful stuff. They are. And we're going to give them $50 billion. Here's the deal. Some governors, some of our governors, I'm not even a venture percentage, but we have a one governor in this that is a member of Strong Towns. We have other governors that I have spoken with that have contacted our office that we have chatted with that are interested in Strong Towns. I have some faith that if we give the money directly to the governors to dole out in proportion, and, and they're going to set up committees, and I mean, it's not going to be like the governor's sitting on a, a throne you know, with people coming and groveling at their feet and handing out money that way. You know, they'll set up processes and committees and what have you. I feel like by not giving it to the existing bureaucracies, but by giving it to the governors to spend in rural areas, you actually have a chance. I'm not guaranteeing anything, but you have a chance that this won't be totally wasted. That we could actually get something decent out of it. We could actually get some innovation. And I just want to add, there will be governors that do a horrible job at this. And maybe even most of them. I don't know. There will be some governors that will do fantastic work with this. And I promise you, 
we will find those governors, we will find those projects, and we will do our best to make heroes out of them and make grand splashes about these projects. And, and I don't care if they're Democrat, I don't care if they're Republican, I don't care if they're independent, I don't care who they are, we're going to make a big deal of the ones that go about doing this in a real strong towns kind of way. This is a lot of money. There's a lot of money for rural areas. And I'll tell you what, everything that we say about the financial solvency of cities becomes more and more acute the smaller that you get. When we go to Lafayette, Louisiana, and we just add up all the public infrastructure, and then we add up all the private investment, and we find that there's $2 of public investment for every $1 private investment, and we say, like, that's insane, that, it, that cannot work. There is no way to squeeze $2 to maintain something over the life cycle of it out of $1 of wealth. They just can't do it. You actually need, instead of a two to one, you need a one to 20 kind of ratio to even start having it make sense. So this is insane. Lafayette's a, a city of population, a couple hundred thousand. Go down to some of these cities with populations of 10,000, 5,000, 500. I've worked in a city once of 83 people. I'm telling you, if you added up the value of all the homes in those cities, it would be maybe $2 million, $3 million. If you add up all the public infrastructure that's been built by the federal government in these cities, you're talking 20 million, 25 million. The ratios here are insane. They're insane. What we have done in rural America by basically importing suburban style development patterns is we have destroyed our rural cities. We've destroyed our small towns. We have made them financially insolvent on a scale that is almost impossible to comprehend. This bill stands to do more of that, to double, triple, quadruple down on that approach. But because it goes through the governors, there's also a chance to reverse some of that. I feel optimistic knowing that we have a lot of governors that are interested in strong towns, knowing that we have a lot of governors who get this stuff, that we're not just going to blow that money, that some of that money will actually be spent doing things that are worthwhile in our communities. And I tell you what, I'm going to North Dakota here in a couple of weeks. North Dakota has a Republican mayor, a guy named Doug Burgum. He is a strong supporter of strong towns. He used to be a Microsoft executive and then uh, did private development in Fargo. He and, and his organization, who is a, a sponsor of, of strong towns, have done some of the most innovative work and, and really are part of an ensemble of private and public organizations that have been transforming Fargo now for well over a decade, maybe even closer to two decades. Fargo, if you've never been there, is a fantastic city. It's really, really a great place. I am going there in a couple of weeks because the governor is launching a statewide Main Street initiative, an idea that we are going to get strong towns thinking into cities all across North Dakota. I'm optimistic that if you give uh, Governor Burgum, you know, a billion dollars out of this fund that is not just going to be thrown away building obsolete sewers and frontage roads in, in small towns. We're going to actually get something decent out of this. I know there's other governors out there thinking along the same lines, thinking in the same way. And, uh, you know, this isn't how I would word the bill. This isn't how I would apportion the money, certainly. 
But I think there's some room for some optimism here based on where the money would get sent to. The final section here that I want to chat about, it's kind of funny because when I've written plans, I always put my principles up front, you know, whatever the principles are, I put those up front. And then I put like action things at the end. Uh, This infrastructure plan that was leaked is the exact opposite. It has uh, all the specifics up front, like here's this plan and here's how much percent of the money it's going to get. And here's how you qualify and here's how we score. And then at the end, it has the statement of principles. Here's the principles that we're, you know, trying to do. I don't know if this means that we're de-emphasizing the, <laughs> the principles or we made up the principles after we came up with the plan or what, but I, I just, I'm going to evaluate them on face value because there's a couple things here that I think are really, really interesting. And yeah, I think it will be interesting to you as well. The first one is that one of the principles here, one of the, the kind of policy changes that they want to make with this plan is to give states the flexibility to toll the interstates. Um, there's a little catch, and I like the catch. I'm, I'm good with this. The little catch is that the money from the tolls has to be reinvested in infrastructure. You can't toll your highway and then use it for education. You can't toll your highway and then use it for paying a pension. You've got to take the money and use it for infrastructure. Now, we all know how budgets work. You know, we take $1 here uh, now comes for a toll and we've got to spend that on infrastructure. So what we do is we take the dollar that we were going to spend on infrastructure from the general fund and we divert that somewhere else. Like, I get that. I'm not dumb. This won't necessarily mean more money, although it could. Uh, It could, depending on how things work out and how the state wants to approach it. What I think is great about this is the kind of backward notion that states should not be given this tool has always just bothered me. As a state, you are not allowed to make this decision to toll your interstates. Having the only mechanism states are allowed to use be essentially like the gas tax, debt, and general funds, and maybe some, you know, license tabs here and there. The idea that we couldn't actually charge people for their usage seems not only completely antiquated, but just counterproductive. If I can't put a toll on a bridge and essentially, you know, regulate the toll uh, so that we get good traffic flow across that bridge, what what are you doing? You know, what what are you what are you forcing me to do? You're basically forcing me to, you know, commit financial suicide. You're forcing me to do things that financially don't make any sense. And that's basically what our current transportation funding structure does. I don't think tolls are the answer, right? Like, I don't think tolls fix everything. But taking this baby step, allowing states to decide if they're going to toll, where they're going to toll, how much they're going to toll, giving that decision to states, I think is a huge step in the right direction. I say huge step. It's a baby step in the right direction. It's a baby step in a huge direction. If this kind of philosophy starts to creep into our departments of transportation, starts to creep into our state legislatures, starts to creep into our broader population that like, hey, when I ride on the road, I'm going to actually pay for that. If that starts to become part of our cultural dialogue, that is a major shift. And that's a really important shift. And if this bill helps to bring that about by taking this small little baby step, then, then bravo, right? Like, I, I think that that is, a, that is a substantive reform that, quite frankly, both political parties 
for as long as I've been active and, and seeing these issues debated, have been unwilling to do. If now all of a sudden the stars align and, and we have someone advocating for this and the Congress is going to acquiesce to it and allow it to go through as part of a broader bill, bravo, bravo, you know, this needs to happen. There's one other thing in here, and I find this absolutely fascinating. And I'm not going to claim that this came from us, although we've been calling for this since the beginning of Strong Towns. This is something that we've talked about. But the, the way this is written, I have an impossible time believing this is going to pass Congress, although it would be fascinating if it did. And, and really, given the current makeup of Congress, it might be seen as like a partisan thing for Republicans to kind of, you know, stick it to cities. But I would argue that this is exactly what cities need. I would argue that if you're an urban legislator, if you're, you know, an urban representative in Congress, this is exactly what needs to happen. Here it is. In this plan, there is a statement that says, transit, any transit projects, and remember, we're only funding them with a 20% federal match now, not an 80% or 90% or 95% federal match, but a 20% federal match. So what you're talking about is the rest of that 80%. Where is that coming from? The statement in the plan says that for major transit projects, states, cities are required to use value capture as a financing mechanism. Let me say that again. Whoever is doing this project is required to use value capture. It's not optional. It's not something that you could choose to do as part of your local match and you know part of your 80%. You are required to do this. I think this is incredible. And I think if you are an urban legislator, you should be running people over to vote for this plan, to support this. Let me break this down a little bit. And I actually think that I might have to do a, a future podcast just on the concept of value capture. And maybe I can find a guest that we can chat about this a little bit. Let me give you a non-transit example. And then let me try to give you a, a, a transit example so that you can think about this a little bit. When I used to work as an engineer, we would go in and we would do what are called assessment projects, direct assessments. This is not a tax. This is not a fee. It's something called a direct assessment. And actually, your ability to do direct assessments comes right out of the, the Constitution. You're not able to uh, see someone's property without them being duly compensated. And right out of that clause comes this idea of the direct assessment. If we would go by and we would put in sewer, water, roadway, sidewalk, and we improved your property by, let's say, $30,000, the city had the right to direct assess you or to charge you that $30,000 that we improved your property. Now, there's a whole lot of like caveats to that. There's a certain process that you have to follow. The state generally sets up that process. It varies slightly from state to state. You cannot direct assess more than the property improves in value. That's always a very contentious thing. Did you improve my property by the full 30,000 or did you only improve it by 25,000? If you only improve it by 25,000, but it cost you 30, you can still only bill me 25. You can't bill me the 30. 
if you go out and replace my paved road with a new paved road, have you improved my property value? No, but cities often use the direct assessment process for that anyway. Direct assessments are routinely abused on small projects for small people. They are never applied to big projects and big people. And when I say small people and big people, I'm talking about their level of influence. Let me give you, before I get to transit, let me give you another example of a direct assessment that doesn't happen. Trust me, I worked on these projects. We would go in and we would have like trailer houses with people who were on, you know, food stamps and uh, living below the poverty line. And we would be assessing them tens of thousands of dollars for improvements we were making to their property when the assessment was worth more than their house. We did that because this was not why I did it. I worked for the city. The city did it because, let's give them the benevolent reason, uh, they felt that these improvements were important. Let's give the nefarious reason. They knew that the people they were doing this direct assessment to didn't have the ability to fight back. So it was easy to do, and you didn't have to think hard about it. It's a way to get money from poor people, basically. Let me give you another example, and before I get to the transit example. So there's a field along the highway. And the county goes in and, and through their county planning, there's an interstate, right? State highway. The county goes in and through their planning process, decides that they're going to have a road that will go to this interstate and they want to have an interchange here. That gets published in the county's plan. People who are aware of this uh, from a long range planning standpoint, they go in and acquire the land around this future potential interchange. Maybe farmland sells for 2000 an acre. They go in and pay 3000 or 4000 an acre for these pieces. The property owners gladly sell. They you know, are getting a great deal. And these land speculators hold this land. They may hold it five years. They may hold it 10 years. They may hold it 20 years. It's, you know, valued as ag, so the holding costs are very little. They're not paying very much taxes on it every year to, to hold on to it. And then one day, through whatever means, you know, the legislature appropriates the money, the federal government comes in with their match, the county politicians are able to make it their priority project, whatever it is, the money comes through to build this interchange. And let's say that it's $10 million. Like we come in and the state builds this brand new interchange. All of a sudden, that land that was $2,000 an acre is now $200,000 an acre. Those people who own that property are now rich. They have millions of dollars worth of property. And the reason they are rich is because the government built the interchange. That is why. Who should pay for that interchange? Well, right now, we just pay for that, you know, through regular transportation funding. We just pay for that. We borrow the money. We take it out of the general fund. We use gas tax. We use license fees. Uh, what have you? We, you know, that's a public investment. Why should all of that public investment go to making a handful of people extremely wealthy. Why? Why? That doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, I've actually been on projects where uh, the state was going to reroute a highway. So there's a little section of highway the state's going to reroute, and there was a gas station there, and now the highway would be rerouted to a different place. The state actually had to go in and compensate the gas station for the loss of traffic. Think that one through. 
The state never went to the gas station and said, hey, when we put this highway right by this piece of property, you compensate the taxpayer for the increased value we created. Never. We never do that. Why? Why? Because these projects are always framed as growth. And those developers, those speculators, those people sitting on the property, they're there for a reason, right? They understand the windfall that's going to take place. They understand the process. They know how to position themselves. They know how to make the system work for them. This happens all the time. And what should happen? I mean, let's, let's look at this for a second. What should happen? I, I think one of two things should happen. Either number one, when the state builds the interchange, before the state builds the interchange, they go in and they acquire all that land at pre-development prices. So go in and pay $4,000 an acre for that, that land and then develop it and then sell it for 200000 an acre and use that money to actually pay for the interchange. That would be one way to do it. Another way to do it, maybe one that tracks a little bit more with our American sensibilities of, of property rights, is to go in and say, okay, if you guys want this interchange here, we're going to direct assess the properties that benefit. So we're going to look around and say, all right, this is going to cost $10 million. Here are all the properties that are going to benefit, and here's how much they're going to go up in value as a result of this. You'd have to get assessors in. You'd have to get property appraisers. You'd have to do all this in advance. Let's say that it increases the properties in value of $20 million. So You're spending $10 million and getting $20 million in value. Just say, we're just going to assess $10 million. So your property goes up. For every $2 it goes up, we're going to have you pay $1. That's still a great deal, right? That's still a, a fantastic deal. You take that money, you pay for your interchange, and now your rising tax base uh, allows you to cover the O&M. That, that's how we should do it. Let me give you the transit example now. Because I hear people all the time, you know, and the Californians, when they were talking about the high-speed rail project they wanted to do, or they're in the process of doing, uh, kept referring to, you know, Asia and the bullet trains. You know, China has these great uh, high-speed rail lines. Japan has these great high-speed rail lines. Why can't we do that here? Well, I'll tell you why. We don't, we don't do any type of financing that makes any sense. How are we paying for high-speed rail in California? Well, a whole bunch of borrowed federal money and a whole bunch of borrowed state money. And then at the end of it, politicians are going to look and say, well, we're not recovering this money through the fare box. That, that's absurd. That's absolutely absurd. Let me tell you how these great Asian high-speed rail projects are built. Or, or let's just make this simpler. Let me tell you how the railroads in the Western United States were built. My little hometown here, Brainerd, Minnesota. How was that built? The Northern Railroad came through the Northern Railroad owned the land. They got the land as a land grant from the federal government. Now, we can go back further and say the federal government took the land from Native Americans, right? But the federal government gave the land. So essentially, no cost in this transaction, no long-term obligations to the government. Government gives the land to the railroad company. The railroad comes in, and what does the railroad do? It plats out the city. It lays out the town. It lays out the neighborhood that my house is in. It lays out the neighborhood that my office is in. It lays out the downtown. It designs the park. It designs all this. It sets it up, and then it sells the land to speculators, to investors, to people who are going to come and build the city. And they take the money they get from that sale, and they use it to build the line. They build the railroad infrastructure. They actually build the system. Then... They charge money 
to haul stuff over this line. They charge people to ride on it. They charge people to haul goods across it. And guess what that money goes to? That's the money that pays for operation and maintenance. Now, if, if the railroads were going to operate back in the late 1800s here in Brainerd, the way that our government does transit today, what would they do? Well, the first thing they would do is they would go out and build lines all over the place. They would put in billions of dollars of rail line. Then uh, they would try to charge enough along those rail lines. They would try to charge enough fares for people to actually cover not only the operation and maintenance, but all the debt and all the interest on the loans that you took out to build the line. That's absurd. That that never works. No one ever does it that way. What they do is they own the land. The improvement raises the value of the land and they take that increase in value to pay for the improvement. That's what they do. And you can go to Asia and you can see the way their cities are built. That's exactly what they do. So you look right now and California is debating this bill where within a half mile, I think it is, of all transit stops, uh, we're going to basically supersede local zoning and allow people to build uh, high density development because we got these transit stops and we've got this housing crisis. We need to build a lot more. Here's what we're going to do. And you look at that and you're like, well, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. What's the problem here? The problem is that those lines should never have been built in the first place. Not unless there was some financial mechanism in place that would actually push that land to be developed. What we did is we went in and we built a whole bunch of transit in California cities without any requirement that the land be developed any more intensely. We didn't have any value capture. We didn't take any steps to maximize that investment. We didn't take any steps to even pay for the investment. We just made a whole bunch of people rich and asked nothing in return for it. This plan, I'm ecstatic over this. If I had to guess, well, this past Congress, I would say there's like a 90% chance that it won't. But if politicians were smart, they would, you know, if Congress were smart, and savvy, and which I believe they can be at times. If they were savvy, they might complain about this, but they would pass this thing and just blame it on the president, whatever, but get this requirement in place. Because what it will do, yes, it will stop frivolous transit projects from going forth. Yes, that will happen. Yes, it will slow investment in transit in this country. Yes. But what it will do is it will ensure that every single transit investment we build is going to be massively successful the moment it's built and forever into the future. That's what it's going to do. And you won't have to have local zoning tyranny like they're, you know, centralized zoning control like they're proposing in California. You won't have to have crazy things like that. What you will do is you will have either a direct assessment or you will have, you know, the government actually purchasing properties pre-development, experiencing that gain, and then selling them back into the market. This is how the Champs-Élysées was built, people. This is a time-tested way of making large improvements in a community. The fact that we, like, culturally are unable to get our minds wrapped around this is just a reflection of the extreme affluence that we've thought we have been living under. We don't live under that. If we're going to do major transit projects, we've got to do them in a way that financially pays. And this is the only way. This is the only way. I love the fact that it's not 
making this a suggestion, but is making it a requirement. This should be a requirement. I'm going to stop there. This isn't like the greatest bill in the world. This isn't the bill that I would have, have created. But I think there's enough reform in here. There's enough like major kind of shifts in thinking that, uh, that I'm not down on this. I don't think this is a bad thing. And if this passed just the way it is, there's a, there's a lot that would make me cringe. If we're going to be true Strong Towns advocates and like die on, you know, every hill so that there's nothing offensive to us, uh, this bill's got a lot of offensive stuff and, and I would not vote to approve it. But I think if we're looking at like pragmatically, how do we craft legislation that actually starts to turn away from kind of the, what I think are the horrible principles of the Obama era stimulus, where let's just hand out money for a bunch of shovel-ready projects, you know, as fast as we can to get the economy going, to something that would be a lot more strategic and a lot more targeted and require a lot more skin in the game, a lot more discernment at the local level along with like a greater degree of autonomy at the local level. It's not perfect, but I think it's a huge step in the right direction. Thanks everybody for listening. I'll be back next week. Keep doing in the meantime, what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? is not always open but if nobody's pushing then once the window opens there'll be no chance to go through i like you i like your vision of the of the world the united nations earth summit agenda 21 yeah